Are you that weirdo that's been to the Mob Museum in Las Vegas? Then this is the podcast for you. Welcome to Happy Hour Gets Weird. Watermelon cantaloupe. Watermelon <laughs> cantaloupe. Titty tassels, kitty tails. Titty tassels, kitty tails. Perfect. We're ready. <laughs> okay. Hello and welcome or welcome back, weirdos and friends. I'm Cassie. And I'm Tiffany. And this is Happy Hour Gets Weird. And welcome to a new block. Yeah. Well, I just recently went to Viva Las Vegas and it has inspired our end of the year block of episodes. So this is going to be Vegas themed. Vegas, baby. Yes. What happens in Vegas sometimes stays in Vegas. Sometimes comes out at happy hour. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So it is, it's, you know, it's been kind of an interesting couple weeks. We didn't record last week. We kind of took a break to get this series in order. And three of my fingers are out of commission in the last two weeks. What? Yes. Three different injuries. Three different times, three different fingers. It was very bizarre. It was not a good couple weeks for my phalanges. Uh-oh. Yeah. Um, I fell in the store and jammed my ring finger. Like you fell all the way down to the ground? Uh, yes. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. It, I can't go back there. <laughs> um, and then the checker made like a big deal out of it and like screamed louder than I did. <laughs> and then people looked and I did. Okay. So what happened was I went around the plexiglass partition to grab my groceries because I just had one or two bags and mm-hmm. a bagger had come over and grabbed a paper bag and one had fallen on the floor and she didn't pick it up and I stepped on it and I did the old lady Mario Kart no I did the splits oh you didn't spin out like Mario (laughs) no but I went down and one knee slammed on the ground and the other one was trying to fucking do a Vegas showgirl high kick I don't know what got into that leg and then I hit my finger on the check stand on the way down. It was pretty embarrassing. I actually, I, my ego was more um, injured than my physical body. Um, so that was embarrassing. And then I, on the same finger, I almost cut the tip of it off when I was cooking dinner. And then my middle finger on my other hand got bent backwards by my husband when we were doing the money grab while playing Monopoly. Is that uh, code for hanky panky in the sack? <laughs> no, I- Oh, okay. The money grab while playing Monopoly. (laughs) So anyways, it's been an interesting couple of weeks and I'm excited to be back recording. So this episode, what we are drinking, oh my gosh, bourbon is our uh, spirit, this block. And we thought, it was actually Tiffany's idea. It's, It's fall, winter holiday. So I am drinking... Bourbon, plum preserves, honey, thyme, simple syrup, and lemon juice. Delicious. And I, you know, that that would be great like in a, in a martini coupe glass just by itself. Mm-hmm. Um, if you like that 
a really bourbon forward cocktail. I'm not a super fan of bourbon forward. So I added a little ginger ale. I know I'm extra. We all know this. I'm like. (laughs) (laughs) So you can have it, you know, like straight up basically or with a little bubble. Yes. Yeah. So I, um, that's what we're drinking. Um, a recipe and pictures on social media per usual and enough of this stupid chit chat about my fucking fingers. Let's get into this. Okay. So what are we going to talk? What, what side of Vegas are we talking about today? So I'm super excited about this Vegas block. Uh, I think that it's a fun way to end the year. Yes. I'm going to try my hardest to not somehow accidentally cover something that completely horrifies me and saddens me, but no promises. (laughs) Okay. So starting off our Vegas block, we are covering mobs in Vegas. Yes. I keep dancing. We need to add a... (laughs) We need to add a Do like a shimmy, like a showgirl shimmy? I keep doing a shimmy just just to Cassie though. So if you hear if you hear what sounds like two bags smacking each other, it's my breasts. So uh, I have to go first because we're going a little bit in order. I'm going to cover kind of like the history of mobs in Vegas. And Cassie's going to go a little bit more in depth on the topic and some of the very interesting characters that we are going to talk about today. Yes. So my sources are kingvegashomes.com thereviewjournal.com and I listened to season one of the podcast Mobbed Up The Fight for Las Vegas and this was a joint uh, production by the Las Vegas Review Journal and the Mob Museum it was very interesting Uh, I'm probably going to keep listening I think that there's two seasons I'm probably going to finish it but I didn't have time but season one had the bulk of the information that I needed um, most especially episode four but like I said I did listen to the whole first season so I don't think that we could cover Las Vegas without getting into the mob's contribution to making Las Vegas what it is today mm-hmm. because when we think Vegas we all think about the same things Casinos, nightlife, entertainment, amazing food and drinks. Strippers. Obviously. <laughs> Excitement. Good times. Yes. As state archivist Guy Rock put it, quote, we owe a debt of gratitude to the mafia for developing Las Vegas and there's nothing to be ashamed of. It was the mob that moved Las Vegas forward with the good, the bad, and the ugly. End quote. That's a great quote. That And it, it's true. It, it is true. Organized crime in Las Vegas goes way back, like the 1920s. There's always been different types of organized crime in Vegas. I mean, and everywhere in the world. Yeah, sure. In 1931, Nevada legalized wide open gambling. So in the early 30s, it was legal to gamble. But that didn't really drive a ton of people there at that time. Like, just because it was legal doesn't mean that there was actually anything there to do, basically, is what I'm getting at. Yeah. So then in 1933, the prohibition ended, which was the mob's main source of income at that time. So we can kind of see how these things are uh, happening at the same time. Yes. Wheels are starting to turn. Yes. Along with these things, in the late 1930s in Southern California, mainly L.A., 
They had a new mayor, and he was looking to reform. He cleaned up illegal gambling. So it was like all of these different things kind of coalescing at the same time, right? Yeah. We had its legal gamble in Nevada, the prohibition ends, and Southern California is like no more gambling here. So guys that were hiding in the shadows running gambling halls illegally in L.A. were like, fuck this. They moved to Vegas and went legit. Yeah, because you have to think during prohibition, if it's your main source of income, it and I talk about this in the second half, it alcohol is legalized again. There goes your income, you know, because people could go out and buy it. They don't have to rely on the mob to smuggle in or quietly, secretly ship. So it kind of was the perfect storm for Vegas to become this kind of desert mirage of mm-hmm. sin. Exactly. And these uh, guys that were running the gambling halls that decided to move up to Vegas, they knew how to run casinos, but that didn't mean that they had the funds to run a casino. No, they did not. So all of these things kind of came together. Mm-hmm. In 1945, the El Cortez was purchased by a crime syndicate out of New York, the mob. So it was basically like so many different things ended up bringing the mob to Las Vegas and mm-hmm. so many different elements ended up taking the mob out of Las Vegas. Sometimes it's just a perfect storm of a situation. The mob needed money and Vegas was there for the taking mm-hmm. pretty much. Yes. The mob is nothing if not constantly looking for another source of revenue. Oh my, you could not have said it perfectly. They, doing research on the mob, you really do see how fucking enterprising they are. They know how to turn anything into a profit. Yeah, and they were obviously, after Prohibition ended, they were obviously looking for that. Yes. And they found it in Viva Las Vegas. Are we going to get sued? Um, nah. Nah. So in comes the mob. Las Vegas meet Meyer Lansky. Whew. Uh, talk about brilliant. He would later become uh, one of Forbes' 400 richest people in America. It's fucking nuts. It's, it's, it's wild and crazy. <laughs> <laughs> there was also Gus Greenbaum, Mo Sedway, and of course... Bugsy Siegel. Uh-huh. Uh, some names that I'm sure so many people listening are very familiar with. And the second half of our episode, Cassie, you're going to take a closer look at these guys, especially Bugsy, right? Yes. Yeah. So a very, very truncated explanation of what happened next is more mobbed back casinos came in. Because like I said, people knew how to run casinos, but that doesn't mean they had the money to run casinos. And I think we all know that it takes money to make money, right? Yeah. And I think one, sorry to jump in really quick. One thing that is very unique about Vegas and the mob is there were multiple mob crime families operating Mm -hmm. within Vegas, all making a ton of money. Yeah. Typically, I believe that the mob crime families stay separate to their own separate areas but Uh in Vegas they kind of all came together yes they were not all from one place no so money from organized crime combined with funds from more quote-unquote respectable investors Mm -hmm. helped the city to grow Uh, this is where the very notable name of Jimmy Hoffa comes in and obviously he has a huge story all on his own Uh, yeah 
but uh, maybe we'll cover him at a later time. But he was the president of the mob-dominated Teamster Central States Pension Fund. And this organization loaned the mob-backed casinos money. Mm-hmm. A lot of money came from them. And maybe we'll cover this later, but as we all know, the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa is one of our greatest mysteries. Yes. Maybe maybe not so mysterious <laughs> mysteries. I believe, didn't they just find his body? Did they? Uh, yeah, they did. Where? Um, I'm not sure. In somebody's... Oh, he was in cement or something. Oh, shit. I'm sorry. Why he, would they, you not have looked that oh, up? You read sorry. my write-up two days ago. I know, but... I, I you totally literally... Didn't, I didn't want to get too sidetracked on Jimmy Hoffa. Okay, well, to fucking put a pin in it. We're going to cover Jimmy Hoffa later. There's so many people who have their own wild, fantastic crazily unique stories in this this time period with a mob in vegas it is it was mm-hmm. this is fascinating to me i could talk about this for eight fucking hours yeah how it would kind of work with the mobs at the casinos is the mob would put one or more of their men working at the casino and on paper they obviously had a, a specific job a specific casino job mm-hmm. they would be like managing the casino floor or whatever and they did do that as well mm-hmm. um but they also did illegal work for the mob right like how many if if we had a nickel for every time like a mobster was a pit boss we would be millionaires nickels rich <laughs> so an example of this is lefty rosenthal who inspired robert de niro's character in casino so if you've seen casino which i know a lot of people have um based on a true story and lefty rosenthal really did make a huge impact on casino gambling when he he started the first sports book within casino walls which made sports betting like blow up or huge i feel like i shouldn't say blow up talking about the mob uh (laughs) pun intended pun 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 unintended this time, but only this time. I always mean my puns. <laughs> uh, he, so anyways, he was a super well-known sports better, but he also was doing illegal activities for the mob. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, that part to me is kind of fascinating because it's like, yeah, they did illegal things and, you know, obviously broke a lot of laws and did a lot of shitty things. They hurt people. Yeah. But at the same time, they also made legitimate, huge impact on the game on the gambling industry mm-hmm. fascinating, fascinating to me it is it's that something can be like really really shitty but also really influential in kind of a cool way I don't know well it's about it's about two things coexisting at the same time having an impact having a super negative impact and a, a super positive impact yeah totally now I'm sure most people have a vague idea of the mob's crimes, but I think we should talk a little bit about it. The mob skimmed money from casinos, and they did this in a variety of ways. Sometimes they would mess with slot machine scales and kind of crafty shit like that. They would. There was also a sim- more simple way of doing it where they would basically pay off a doorman uh, and then take money directly from the counting rooms. Mm-hmm. And it would be a ton of money, like thousands and thousands of dollars. It wasn't just a little bit here and there. Yeah. Then they would send that money back to their bosses in New York or Chicago or wherever that specific crime syndicate was located. Pretty easy. 
Yeah. Skimming was a big way that the that the mob made money off of casinos. And when you say skimming, it could be misleading because it seems like minute or little or just a little off the top. They were making millions off the skimming racket. Millions. There is a fantastic exhibit in the Mob Museum in Las Vegas uh, just on skimming alone. And they could, oh gosh, I think one year they skimmed $7 million off of one casino. Well, when you're taking like $50,000 at a time, it adds Mm -hmm. up pretty fucking quick. Yeah. It's, (laughs) I mean. It's pretty impressive. (laughs) (laughs) It's like. I know that they did bad things, but when you just imagine somebody just fucking straight up walking into a room with a briefcase, filling it with stacks of cash, and then walking out, it's insane. I mean, it's the... Like, I don't want to say impressive, but fuck. It's... I'm impressed by the audacity. It's... Yeah, exactly. Cassie. What? I figured out our act two. (laughs) Ours is a retirement plan. It's our pension. Oh, that would be such a fun retirement. That's what I'm saying. It'd be a long game. We'd both get a job at the casino. We'd work for 15 years. We'd plan it for 15 <laughs> years. And then like the day before our retirement, we could skim job. This The skim job? That's what the, we call it? Yes. The skim job. The skim job. We should wear matching shirts that say that the day that we do this crime. <laughs> It'd be awesome. Uh... Uh, okay. I plead the fifth. I take it all back. You cannot use this in court against me. Okay. So the mob brought money and power, which made Las Vegas into a desert oasis. Celebrities soon flocked to the strip. The famous rat pack, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, and Sammy Davis Jr. made the stardust its home base. Other performers like Elvis Presley, never heard of him, brought in crowds. (laughs) Slot machines, card tables, bars, and world-class entertainment. Tourists flooded Las Vegas for the gambling, the entertainment, all of it, just like today. Mm -hmm. And for a while, this is how it went. The mob ran Las Vegas. A lot of the locals um, seemed to like it. Mm -hmm. The mob treated locals well, unless they didn't. (laughs) Unless you crossed them, then you were fucked. Sleeping with the fishes and all that. (laughs) On the Mobbed Up podcast, they talked about how they would have pie night for locals, what would be like a couple of bucks back then. It's still really cheap, and you would be able to watch a show and have pie and coffee. Like, just for locals. They did little things like that, and I think that it's kind of easy. I mean, if you give me pie, I'll be your friend, too. I'll also like you. Yeah, and the ironic thing that I learned about the mob is that they were super um, community-centric, I think Mm -hmm. and uh, they did have a sense of community and I I find it so ironic that they would be so destructive in communities yet kind of build try to build a sense of community I think that that kind of goes along with also how the mob ended up kind of crumbling a little bit in its later days is I think Mm -hmm. the mob actually started off within itself Mm -hmm. as really community focused and within each other like this sense of family and all Mm -hmm. this yeah but then I think over time as they got bigger and things got more intense and maybe a little dirtier and a little shittier I think that that sense of like family and unity crumbled and I think that that is also happened with their sense of community and in the outward Yes. In the areas that they were located. Yes. 
And I think that's also why people are kind of fascinated by the mob because a lot of times it is the violence is concentrated within their own members. Yeah. So if you sign up for it, that's the risk that you take, I guess. And so I think that that's why people can kind of look past some of the violence and the bad things that they do because Mm -hmm. it's within their own mob family or within other members of other mob families kind of. Yeah, Bugsy Siegel, we'll talk more, I'll talk more about him later, but he was one of the most prolific enforcers for the mob, and one of his most well-known quotes was, we only kill our own. Yeah. So, and when he moved to Vegas, a lot of people were kind of weary, unsure of him, the contractors, and Mm -hmm. he had to say, oh, hey, don't worry, you don't. Because he would tell a story about how he killed somebody to a contractor and their contractor would have like a horrified look on their face and be like, oh, you have nothing to worry about. We only kill our own. That was like one of the stories talking about, I don't think it was Lefty. I think I can't remember everybody's names, but Mm -hmm. talking about the amount of murder he committed, like Mm -hmm. the, like the Las Vegas murders increased by like four times when he came to town yeah yeah because he killed so many people and they kept trying to arrest him but nobody would ever testify against him and sometimes they wouldn't even have a body they just knew that the person was dead yeah that's why it's the mob to me i i totally agree why people are fascinated because it, it has such a high concentrate of murderers like vicious murderers and like sociopath and cutthroat and whoa it's like so fascinating and they were so financially successful and a lot of them were like family men and community driven and it, it's so it's a lot of uh, contradictions or what's that juxtaposition it's easy to become rich and successful if you're willing to do anything to get there though right that's totally that's a good point <laughs> if we were willing to to be the skim job grannies <laughs> we'd go to the moon man yeah. you gotta shoot for the moon we'll land among the stars yeah i yeah i agree if you're willing to kill somebody over 50 buck 50 dollar gambling debt you're you're probably gonna be successful financially yeah so the mob wasn't working totally unnoticed as they perhaps hoped the gaming commission was watching and by the 60s they worked on getting criminals out of the gaming world yeah good luck <laughs> Regulators created the notorious List of Excluded Persons, a.k.a. the Black Book of Undesirables, banned from casinos, to keep a closer eye on the mob. This shit was widespread and well-known. The mob might have wanted to go unnoticed when they committed crimes, but everyone knew that they were running Las Vegas. President John F. Kennedy and his brother Bobby Kennedy were on a mission to take down the mob, and considered the mob ties to casinos the best way to do it. However, the Kennedys didn't take down the mob, but its chokehold on Sin City did eventually come to an end. And like all things, especially with the mob, it was complicated. (laughs) Just like the mob coming to Vegas, there were a lot of different factors leading to the mob leaving Vegas, or the, the majority of the mob influence leaving Vegas. This is talked about in depth in the Mobbed Up podcast that I listened to, but there was a significant bust of mob members after a lengthy surveillance operation. 
the operation was basically looking for mobsters to admit to local murders because, like I said, the murder rate had jumped up so significantly. And that surveillance did end with them talking about murders, and it also and gave them evidence of the mob skimming from various casino chains. Mm. Key mob players ended up in federal hands, or worse, dead in a cornfield. Ooh. Uh, pretty fucking terrible either way, I guess. Yeah. In the 1970s, Vegas passed the RICO Act, which is the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, that provides for extended criminal penalties and a civil cause of action for acts performed as part of an ongoing criminal organization. That really bumped up penalties mm-hmm. for um, organized crime. The Nevada legislature allowed for public corporations, meaning corporations that had stock stocks, to own casinos. And then millionaire Howard Hughes spent millions of dollars as in like 300 million mm-hmm. buying casinos from mob gangsters yeah um he was so involved in vegas real estate um and purchasing of casinos that he has also his own section at the mob museum in vegas and he was a fucking odd duck let me tell you um, he bought a ton, like you said, a ton of casinos. He actually bought uh, the uh, one entire hotel because he just didn't want to leave the penthouse. He just didn't want to go through the lobby, go down. He just didn't want to deal with other people <laughs> leaving the penthouse. So he just bought the entire casino. Wasn't he actually a gambling addict? I believe so. He was um a recluse in his later years in vegas and then he eventually moved on to somewhere else i think um but he had severe i think undiagnosed ocd Mm -hmm. um so he had some very very odd behaviors um we could do a whole episode just on him we're gonna do a fascinating people's series where we, we just talk about all of the people that we don't have time to cover on all of these other episodes yes we really should it that would be a great series because he what he would do really weird things like the, one of the last movies he directed he got hyper focused on the dart in the main actress's shirt and it made it look to him that she had two nipples on each boob and he just mm-hmm. got hyper focused on that and was like hyper focused on her wardrobe and then he didn't like the feeling of clothes against his body so Uh when he screened all of his movies he would sit in a dark room totally naked with a pink napkin over his lap (laughs) and he ate the same thing every day i kind of do that too now but it's just because i don't have time to cook (laughs) i thought you meant (laughs) watching movies in the dark with a pink napkin on your lap i do that also because i don't have time to do laundry (laughs) I want the kind of fuck you money where I just buy a hotel because I don't want to leave. Seriously. I mean, yeah. So then the Boyd group, uh, Boyd Gaming, took over the Stardust in 1984. And with the mob, money talks. They walked away from Las Vegas millionaires, and I don't think they were upset about it at all. 
No. The, the mop at this point was already so different than it once was in its glory days. I think that they were ready to move on. It, yes, you're, you are correct. Even amongst historians, which I am not, those were just a few of the many different reasons that the mafia's uh, extensive hold on Las Vegas kind of came to an end. And even amongst historians, they don't really agree. There was just all of these different factors, like yes. I said. Just yeah. like, you know, at the beginning, there was all these different things that just happened to happen at the same time, which pretty much brought the mob to Las Vegas. Perfect storm situation. Yes. Perfect storm coming in, perfect storm going out. Mm-hmm. And although obviously the mob still exists, by the late 1980s, the mob didn't have the same stranglehold on Las Vegas any longer. Now Vegas is owned by millionaires and corporations. So just a different cast of criminal masterminds, I guess. Mm, I couldn't have said it better myself. At the Mob Museum, let's take a shot every time I say Mob Museum, please. Um, in, they have an exhibit about the transition from what we traditionally saw as organized crime, the mob, to modern day organized crime. So you kind of go through and it goes all the way back from the very first mob made men and wise guys and then it goes all the way through to kind of modern day it was it it, that museum is fantastic and the people working there are fantastic if you are in las vegas i highly recommend you go and take a tour there um they have all kinds they have a crime lab that you can do experiments in they have a shooting range where you can shoot old mob um weapons and they have a moonshine distillery because like tiffany said bootlegging was a huge business for the mob and vegas was no exception so um i took the distillery tour turns out moonshine isn't my favorite (laughs) yeah that's why i didn't think you would want to do a whole block drinking moonshine (laughs) um i feel (laughs) like we could do some doctoring but the um distillery tour guide she was phenomenal i highly recommend her class um or her tour they end the museum with modern day organized crimes which is it's such a it's it is a transition but but kind of not because some of the things that the traditional mob did they're being done today but just i guess maybe on a bigger scale or not organized um, but some of the modern day organized crimes are sex trafficking, exotic animal poaching. I had no idea that exotic animal poaching was such a huge organized crime and there's such a big market for it. Mm-hmm. Um, that makes me very sad. I mean, also sex trafficking makes me sad and drug trades, um, specifically fentanyl. It's a huge... Which is terrifying. Yeah. Oh, my God. I'm... I, full disclosure, I do not do drugs for multiple different reasons, and one of them is because of fentanyl. I actually heard about a woman who died just because fentanyl was in a room she vacuumed because it's that potent. She vacuumed the rug that fentanyl spilled on, and she died. It is so dangerous, and people are dying daily very very Um, scary it's very scary so they had a modern day kind of organized crime some of the key pieces to that and it it's it's scary it is scary and it's like I guess it's easy for us to look back on the mob history in Vegas and Mm -hmm. 
looking back on something that happened before, mm-hmm. we can kind of uh, add that um, filter of nostalgia mm-hmm. to the mob's influence in Vegas. Mm-hmm. But at the time, I'm sure it was scary for the for a lot of the people too. Absolutely. Obviously, these innocent people living in the neighborhoods that were you know constantly terrorized by turf wars and um, up and comers, and yeah, it is probably very scary. But it is fascinating to talk about. Yes, it is. Okay. Are you ready to do your deep dive? Uh, yes. Okay. All right. Thank you so much for that. That was such a good little mob nutshell. I loved it. It's so hard to do a really short history on something as complicated as the mob taking control of a complicated city like Las Vegas like there's so many layers it's like we have the prohibition we have gambling we have a fucking desert that's just like do what you want here and then it all just mashed together and created this fucking hurricane but um I tried to be concise I don't know if I was I felt a little rambly but you're welcome America oh well if you thought that was rambly (laughs) be prepared (laughs) um Okay, so I am going to, and you know what's complicated about this, just as far as like research and kind of condensing it into a relatively respectful podcast length, is Mm -hmm. there were so many people involved. So many people who had like rich histories and big roles and key parts. And even if they had a small part, it made a big impact. And it's... And cool nicknames. Yeah, very cool nicknames. My sources for this are pbs.org, American Experience, Las Vegas Syndicate, uh, Wikipedia, multiple Wikipedia pages, and then I also read a book titled Bugsy Siegel, The Life and Legacy of the Notorious Gangster Who Helped Develop Murder, Inc. and the Las Vegas Strip by Charles River Editors. In order to head out west, we need to start in the east. I'm walking here. <laughs> hey, wise guy. Are you looking at me? Who are you looking at? Are you looking at me? I'm walking here. That's I'm walking here. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I am such a weirdo. I'm like a theater nerd at heart. Remember that um, talk show? Oh, gosh. I think it was Jenny Jones. Mm-hmm. Or was it Ricky Lake? Uh, it was one of them. It was. I watched both. It was one of them. There was a, it was like an episode where mom is like meddling in my love life. And one of the audience <laughs> members was clearly from New York. And she stood up and she's like, who are you to tell her who to love? You're not even her mother. Who are you to, who are you to tell her who to love? So um, anyways, I, as a kid, walked around saying, that's the only thing I could say in a New York accent. And I walked around for like a year straight saying that. It was like on a loop in my head. <laughs> Um, anyways. Just a tiny 40-year-old woman. Yeah. Like who you are you to tell her who to as- love? You're not even a mother. And I would just like sit in my room and just look around and just say that to my empty space. <laughs> nope. I'm not neurodivergent at all. <laughs> um, okay. So in the early 1900s, New York was a melting pot of immigrants and all different kinds of people from all over the world. Um, including Italian-Americans and Jewish-Americans. Within these community, gangs formed. There was the Italian-American mob, a.k.a. the Mafia, Mm -hmm. 
and the Jewish mob. These gangs operated independently from one another within their boroughs or neighborhoods of New York. And there, there, it is to be noted that there were friction between the gangs, and that's kind of why they stayed within their territories. Now, I'm going to get into some of the major players that we've kind of mentioned before, um, Tiffany mentioned before, um, and they were involved in changing the la- landscape of organized crime the mafia specifically, and the birth of Las Vegas as we know it today. Uh, I'm going to stick with three main characters uh, because to simplify things, um, because there's a lot of wise guys in the mob. Okay, so there is... Now, I'm so sorry if I butcher these names. I've practiced them. I looked them up. However, I still might butcher them. Sorry. Um... There is Salvatore Luciana, a.k.a. Charles Lucky Luciano. A lot of these mobsters or wise guys changed their name to, to, to sound more Americanized. Mm-hmm. And he was the head of the Five Points Gang, which fell under the Italian-American mafia. There was Meyer Sachalowski, Saukaulansky, which a.k.a. Meyer Lansky. Much easier to say. Yeah, um, I looked this up and it said the stupid robot said it was such a Lansky. And I was like, I don't think it's such a last Lansky. And he was a Polish Jew who lived on the Lower East Side and he was part of a Jewish gang, the Jewish mob. And then we have Benjamin Siegelbaum, a.k.a. Ben Bugsy Siegel. And he was a Jewish boy who was born in Brooklyn and he was a member of the Jewish mob. So, like I mentioned before, the gangs stuck within their own neighborhoods, which meant most of the time they didn't cross ethnic boundaries. Lucky was born in Sicily, and he immigrated to the United States with his family when he was eight, um, which placed him in the five-point gang under the umbrella of the Italian-American mafia. To expand his revenue... He offered protection for members of the smaller Jewish gangs for 10 cents a week. So Lucky kind of started to blur the lines between the ethnic boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, like you said earlier, they're super good at finding a way to make a profit. And <laughs> yeah. he was like, here's the thing. Here's this Jewish gang. It's not as big as the Italian mafia. Hey, I'll protect you for 10 cents a week. So it was like the protection racketeers that they would um, hold the shopkeepers and the vendors to in the neighborhood, but on a smaller scale. Mm -hmm. And this is how he met Meyer Lansky. Walking home one day from school um, in the poverty-stricken Lower East Side, Lucky Luciano ran into Meyer Lansky and offered him protection for 10 cents a week. And, you know, same as the shopkeepers that were offered protection, this wasn't an offer that you refused. Uh, but Meyer Lansky uh, was like, fuck you. <laughs> I don't need your protection. I might be five foot tall on my best day and small in stature, but I will fuck your shit up. Um, he was incredibly smart and incredibly mm-hmm. scrappy. He is so smart. Yeah, brilliant. Lucky kind of saw a like a himself in Lansky and he took a liking to him and he kind of took him under his wing and they became friends. That being one of the first instances, this friendship, and they kind of started to like 
worked together a little bit, became one of the first instances where um, gangsters with different ethnic histories crossed that boundary and started to work together. Um, and I'm kind of laying the ground for what's to come next. So let's put Lansky and Lucky Luciano aside for just a bit. So the third key player, the man basically responsible for starting Vegas to what it is today was Ben Bugsy Siegel. Ben Siegel was born in 1906 in Brooklyn to Hungarian Ashkenazi Jewish immigrants. And Ben Siegel's parents were hardworking. They worked long hours in factories in New York and their incredible work ethic was instilled to in their son, Bugsy Siegel, or Ben Siegel. Um, apparently he hated the name Bugsy. I heard that, that he didn't <laughs> like his nickname. No. But it meant he was going to fly off the handle, right? Yeah, it, it started from, oh, he's as crazy as a bed bug. And um, that kind of... <laughs> I guess I wouldn't like that fucking nickname either. Yeah, and he said he was quoted saying, my friends call me Ben, acquaintances call me Mr. Siegel, and my enemies call me Bugsy, but never to my face. Ooh, pretty good. Yeah. Although... Bugsy had parents that tried to do their best to care for their family and do right by their kids. He ran the streets. He was the very definition of a fucking hooligan. (laughs) Um, He started off with petty stuff, um, then protection rackets, which is like, you know, you go to a street vendor and you say, hey, I'll protect your cart from the other gangs or the other mobs or whatever for like two bucks a week. And if the vendor said no... They would push the carts over. They would literally burn them to the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, they would steal all the stuff out of it. So they really gave these vendors no choice. Yeah. Um, he started setting up little gambling things in the streets and alleyways. Some were rigged. Some were, some were legitimate. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, he was – and this is like a very young age. Like he – Started off very young. And he actually met Meyer Lansky. Um, There's a lot of different stories on how they met. Um, The most legitimate one, in my opinion, is Bugsy. In your what? In my opinion. (laughs) Kind of sounded like you said penis. So I just wanted you to say it again. (laughs) In my penis. In my Um, penis. (laughs) uh, Bugsy, I think, was part of like a craps game on the street a fight broke out bugsy whipped out a gun and was brandishing a gun and he's probably like 12 and lansky was walking by and they heard um police whistles because that's what they had at the time and um was he walking there yeah i'm walking here <laughs> sorry <laughs> um and lansky told bugsy to put the gun away and kind of pulled him in the alley got rid of the gun and um covered for him yeah totally and bugsy um and him became lifelong friends after that it's kind of cool that i mean as shitty as these guys all are a lot of them made friends in the neighborhood when they were kids and they Mm -hmm. kept those friendships forever until they didn't until they didn't they really did. Um, Bugsy Siegel actually was even neighborhood friends with Al Capone. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was interesting. They're all kind of intertwined. 
Meyer Lansky and Bugsy Siegel then formed their own mob and it was called the Bugs and Meyer mob, which I find interesting that like Ben Siegel didn't like the name Bugsy, but he did Bugs and Meyer mob. Was That's the name. how they know him. That's how they know him though. Yeah, I guess it's you're like right. if you, I can't think of a single example of somebody having a nickname. Uh, I, so. That's fine. I know what you mean. Great job, Tiff. Great, yeah. great job. <laughs> Uh, so the Bugs and Meyer mob flourished during the Prohibition, just like all everybody in the mob did. They would steal cars to run alcohol, or they would rob other alcohol runners. Um, they just were pretty. They were they they made a lot of money using their connections with Lucky, who was in the mafia, um, and other connections. The Bugs and Meyer mob had made they began to operate as contracted hitmen for the mafia and the mafia is so mob and mafia are not synonymous with each other or one another they the mob is the term for kind of the overall crime organized crime and the mafia is specifically italian american mob very good to know yes so there's also a difference, which I probably should have touched on this in my end, but it's so hard to organize such huge amounts of information and condense them very tightly. Like a little, our episodes are just little diamonds. They're so Ooh, condensed. That is, oh, I love that. Um, everyone listening's like, yeah, diamond. Sure. Fuck off, Steve. <laughs> diamond in the rough. Um, but there's a difference between made men that are really members of the mafia and then mm-hmm. everybody else who just works for the mob or the mafia, right? Yes. Yes. So to be a made man, to be like really in, you go through a ceremony and you have a lot more power. You have power mm-hmm. basically. Yes. You will also have to do certain things, follow yes. certain rules. Yes. But if you work for the mafia, you don't have power or you work for the mob, you don't have the power. You still have rules, but not the same rules. It's kind of like becoming, getting a tenure when you're a teacher. Yeah. It's like upper management versus the hired hands of the yeah, company or, or whatever. like, I think nepotism too would make you a made man. I be- mm-hmm. Like if you were literally legitimately just born into the family. I think you still have to go through the ceremony and the pomp and circumstance of becoming a made man, at least back then. There you was certain say, things. I'm walking here. At least you have to five say I'm times. walking here five times. <laughs> organically. <laughs> or, no, yeah. Organically throughout a day. Yes. And you have to win a cannoli eating contest. Or pierogi. You have to shoot off a gun that, that you're not supposed to have four times in the air. <laughs> yeah. You have to sleep with the fishes once. We're making light of the mob. They are very serious, very dangerous, very murderous. Yeah. Dark underbelly of the crime world or the crime world itself but that's why we're teasing them a little bit because they're yeah. they are murderers but really i think it's very religious like i think it involves like a religious card it's um it's oh like gosh. a ceremonial card ceremonial like, yeah it's very it's a there's a whole ceremony it's yes like intense and i think you yeah. i think you become blood brothers also and that's yes. not a joke but it sounds like i'm joking <laughs> okay so and this is kind of like, even though Meyer Lansky and Bugsy Siegel were 
part of the Jewish mob. Once they started to become contracted hitmen, they were, like you said, they weren't made men, but they were more enmeshed. It Like the lines were becoming more and more blurred between the two syndicates, if you will. Mm-hmm. But you know, here's the thing. I just want to make a side note about Bugsy Siegel. Like we are making light of the mob just because this is a comedy podcast. Um, well, I like to think it is. <laughs> we call ourselves. <laughs> it's our podcast. We can say whatever it is. Um, but, and this, you know, Vegas is glamorous, you know, and there's mm-hmm. a very glamorous side of being in the mob and organized crime. But I want to, I want to make this side note because I, I think it's important. Bugsy Siegel has often been glamorized and in most of the biographies written about him um, the fact that he was a sexual predator is often overlooked Um, not only was he known for being incredibly violent hot-headed vicious he was also accused multiple times throughout his life of sexual assault and rape and i say accused only Because with his connections, bribery, and coercion, he was never convicted. Uh, uh, Trigger warning, sexual assault. One accusation when Bugsy was a taxi driver in order to scope out robbery targets, he would pick up actual people wanting a taxi and Mm -hmm. he would drive them around. Well, he picked up a woman and she accused him of pulling over, raping her in the back of the cab, and then continuing to drive on and she was later paid off um Meyer Lansky actually cleaned up a lot of Bugsy's messes like this specifically he would pay the women off awful yeah and then she eventually disappeared altogether so and there was multiple incidences where he would be at a speakeasy and he would um hit on a woman she would rebuff him he would be angry and later sexually assault her there was another incident where a woman had witnessed him harming somebody and he uh, dragged her somewhere and sexually assaulted her and then threatened her with her life if she told anybody um there uh, this these accusations went all the way back to his early teens so he was a Make no mistake, he was a terrible person. With somebody like that, when they have the this power behind them, mm-hmm. what's going to fucking stop them? Nothing. Because like no, you said, nobody did. can say anything. If nope. anybody tries to say anything, they'll either get killed or worse. Yeah. And one of the women, it's in the book that I read um, that I mentioned earlier for my source. In one of them, he... It's noted that he said, oh, yeah, she um, didn't press charges or, yeah, that fell through because she realized it was like the best sex of her life. So he was just. What a fucking scumbag. Yeah, he was a very terrible, awful person. And I just want us to keep that in mind going forward because he he did live this very glamorous life. He was very rich. He was very charismatic. He was very, he fucking built the first major casino in Vegas. Yeah. But he was. Make no a mistake. Piece of you, shit. Yes. Okay. So I just wanted to mention that because no, I didn't, you should. I did not want people to be 
confused uh like he might have been a good person who made a couple mistakes no he was a bad person through and through and shame on those writers who didn't put that in his biography why the fuck would you write a biography if you're not going to write about their full life yeah so now to move forward we need to go back a little bit and let's talk about the national crime syndicate or the syndicate as it's known for short and what exactly that is In 1929, what's known as the Atlantic City Meeting, called by Lucky Luciano in order to discuss the future of organized crime and the five main crime families. Meyer Lansky and Bugsy Siegel were there to represent the Bugs and and Meyer mob. At this meeting, it was decided that they would no longer have friction between the Jewish mob and the Italian-American mafia. They would work as relatively one unit, giving birth to the National Crime Syndicate, which is mostly based out of New York City. Or New York. New York York City. New York City. (laughs) (laughs) At that time, the heads of the mafia were made up of what they called, quote, mustache peats, end quote. They were old world old world mafia leaders who started their careers in Sicily before they immigrated to the United States. Mm -hmm. Lucky Luciano wanted to modernize the mafia and create ties with organized crime outside of the old world families. After a long story that I'm not going to get into in this episode and lots of bloodshed, the New York territory of the mafia was further organized, like I said, into the five major crime families And Lucky Luciano became the boss of all the bosses or the head of the syndicate. So the young man that Meyer Lansky and Bugsy Siegel had met back on the Lower East Side now was the head of this entire syndicate. So they had connections in very high places. Yeah. So the syndicate is a system with multiple branches. For example, there's a prostitution branch or with um, sex workers and pimps alike. There's the gambling branch, corrupt judicial and law enforcement branch. There's the hitmen. There's, There's drug trafficking. There's gun running. There's all kinds of branches. There's get into politics branch. There's teamster unions and uh, there's this it's a web it's a literal web this would be a great game of life game (laughs) yes your p you you get to choose your path yes it's the game of life i'm walking here (laughs) i'm walking here edition and instead of getting kids you get like a gun yes casino chip yes or like some of the things that um you know the bad things like when you have to pay taxes or whatever in life you you get like a a... (laughs) no i'm not gonna say anyways that would be with the fishes you seriously you get cement shoes (laughs) okay so i know this is like a lot of information um so just hear it and take it in this is like just the tip of the iceberg like it's so widespread All right, so the syndicate is basically, like I said, the New York branch of the mafia or the mob. It was, so the mafia and the Jewish mob came together, which formed the the syndicate. Mm -hmm. There's branches all over the country and the world. Uh, For example, um, the Chicago mob is called The Outfit, and that included people like Al Capone, 
John Torrio, and Gus Greenbaum. All right, so the way that I've come to understand the mob is consider the mob like a big corporation and they have regional branches all over the world. Mm-hmm. And these branches are ran by regional managers and their team, which report to the CEO of said corporation. And the goal of the corporation is the same worldwide, make a profit. But each branch practices different business models to make that profit. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how my brain organized it. If that makes it worse for some of you, I'm sorry. <laughs> if it makes it better, you're welcome. All right, so... Now back to Bugsy. So Siegel was heavily involved in the hitman branch of the syndicate. He created a gang of hitmen within the mob, which he affectionately named Murder, Inc. I'm sure we've all heard of Murder, Inc. Mm -hmm. And they were basically in charge of enforcing the will of the syndicate. During the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, if there was a hit order by any part of the mob, it was probably mostly in New York. But it was probably carried out by a member of Murder, Inc. And I think Bugsy Siegel bragged he killed anywhere from 100 to 400. Or Murder, Inc. was responsible from anywhere from 100 to 400 murders. Being higher up, uh, Bugsy could have benefited from delegating more or having people do his dirty work. But he was a hands-on kind of guy and that led him into some trouble. To escape the heat, the syndicate sent him to California, at Hollywood to be exact, and Bugsy Siegel loved Hollywood. He was, he liked the, the finer things in life. He loved Hollywood. He loved rubbing elbows with celebrities and dating beautiful women, and he kind of got his hand into everything illegal that the syndicate was doing in Los Angeles. Gambling, drug running, sports bets. Uh, races, anything that you could imagine he was in. So he, he got involved. He made friends with like Clark Gable and Cary Grant. And he dated some of Hollywood's most beautiful, popular starlets. He then started, he is so enterprising. He's like a fucking cockroach. He then got involved in the actors and cameramen's unions he started blackmailing mm-hmm. studios um like saying hey like these guys aren't going to show up to work unless you pay me to keep them in line i feel like there was a lot of union and mob intermingling back then unions used to have a lot more power than they do now though yes yeah so uh, bugsy's past finally caught up with him and during his time in california he was charged and went to trial for murder the one that he kind of ran from in new york um and after the deaths of all the state's witnesses bugsy was acquitted how bizarre what are the (laughs) odds what a coincidence um and then he was brought to trial a second time for bookmaking um and a popular actor who was friends with the rat pack testified on his behalf and he was again acquitted so Around this time, it was, I would say, the late 30s, early 40s. Mm-hmm. And like you said, the new mayor of L.A. was kind of cleaning up the gambling problem, the illegal mm-hmm. gambling problem. 
and Bugsy was looking for a new place to reinvent himself because um, the two trials had kind of tarnished his reputation in Hollywood. So, like, it, it was a multiple reasons that he was like, you know what? Viva Las Vegas. Viva Las Vegas. <laughs> so, and by this time, gambling was definitely legalized in Nevada. It had been for a long time. So he knew mm-hmm. of it. He would visit there often. Uh, but there was really nothing there. When Bugsy got to Vegas, there were two small casinos and maybe one hotel, um, but nothing on the scale of what Bugsy had in mind for Vegas. And just a little backstory, for thousands of years, Vegas had been desert and meadows, and 2,000 years before fucking Bugsy Siegel got there, before anybody got there, the Paiute tribe lived in the valley. And there's actually evidence that people lived there 10,000 years ago, which is pretty cool. I love that. And it wasn't until 1829 when the first recorded non-native person encountered the valley. And he was a Mexican scout by the name of Rafael Riviera. And actually, Las Vegas is Spanish for the meadows. Viva the meadows. <laughs> I, it works. It works it either way. It, it worked. I love it. I think if you've been to Vegas, you're familiar with Fremont Street. Everybody kind of is. It's one of the ma- – it's not the strip, but it is the old mm-hmm. strip in Vegas, the older part of Vegas where the OG casinos and hotels are. Um, and that was actually named after John C. Fremont, an American explorer and politician who – was credited with drawing a lot of people in the very early days to Vegas. Uh, The railroad came to Vegas, and even the Church of Latter-day Saints set up an outpost between L.A. and Utah in Vegas. So by the time Bugsy got there, Vegas wasn't, like, desolate. It just wasn't what it is today. Exactly. Bugsy didn't create casinos in Vegas he just uh-uh. helped make Vegas what it is. I think with the very first, and I'm going to um, talk about this, but with the, his vision for the very first like kind of upscale casino hotel that he built was what got Vegas rolling. Like it inspired everything to come after. Because the casino hotel he made was spectacular. Yes. Of its time. Yes. Um, but he got there. And if anything, he is enterprising and he recognized the potential to make a lot of fucking money. All right. So we, we have Vegas. It's a little railroad town, a couple casinos, um, desert, desolate. And he gets there and he's like, I'm going to build the fanciest, most opulent, beautiful casino that this town has ever seen. But he had no money. <laughs> Well, he had money, but he didn't have enough. So he begged the syndicate for $2 million in loans to start the Flamingo Hotel. He would model it after the opulence and glamour of Hollywood with a huge casino floor, golf course, swimming pool, and of course, luxury suites. But here's the thing about Bugsy Siegel. He was handsome, charismatic, street smart, tenacious, ruthless. He was enterprising and had successfully had his hand in everything that the mob did. But it turns out 
that when it comes to a legitimate business and construction, Bugsy sucked a fat one. (laughs) He was not good and he was in way over his head. And this is why historically when it came to Bugsy and Meyer Lansky, Lansky was considered the brains and Bugsy was the brawn of the operation, of the partnership. But Mm -hmm. Lansky wasn't able to go out to Vegas and hold Bugsy's hand because at the same time, Lucky Luciano had been deported back to Sicily and he asked Lansky to take over his responsibilities while he was gone. So Lansky was big fucking time. He was big fish back in New York. boss in New York. Yes. Lansky was pretty fucking smart though. So I can see why he was asked to have that role. Like nobody would have asked somebody like Bugsy to do it. No, he's an idiot. (laughs) Um, So Bugsy just continued to rack up debt in Vegas. Within the year, the hotel wasn't, wasn't even built yet. And he had more than tripled his loan. He was up to $6 million in loans and debts from, and he, like you said, he got them some from the syndicate, some he like sold his shares of other properties or other casinos that he had purchased before he mm-hmm. started building the Flamingo. He was making a lot of money in like um, racing and sports bets and um, book booky stuff. Um, but he, oh my God, he's, he fucked it up big time. So $6 million in 1946 is close to $61 million in today's money. People that just kind of know the shallow version of Bugsy Siegel know like the glamorous mobster side of him. Uh Uh-huh. But historians that know the deeper side of Bugsy Siegel, it's like, how the fuck did he spend all this fucking money? And that's what the syndicate wanted to know. (laughs) (laughs) They were like, are you kidding me? So not only did they give him triple what he asked for, and he got it. He got, um, he did get a couple legitimate loans from like Bank of America and a local like credit union there at the time. But he would make mistakes like he installed complete sewer systems in every single room. And that cost him over a million dollars. And then those that those like complete sewer systems caused like a huge problem and they had to build an extra broiler room. Boiler room. Broiler? Was it a stove? I don't know. <laughs> to broil your shit. <laughs> they had to broil some toast for those sewer systems. Um they boiler room. So that cost an extra $150,000. Like he was just making like so many mistakes. And people said that he was spending money like crazy outside of building the Flamingo. Yeah. So it was just, he was just left and right. And then what happened is the builders and contractors started to come back at him because the checks were bouncing. So they were like, uh, we're not doing any work until you pay us. So it was, it was, it was a freaking disaster. So by the end of 1946, so he had been there for a whole year and he was was supposed to build this, uh, hotel and Mm -hmm. he was out of options and he was forced to do a grand opening with it unfinished. 
Oh my god. He had counted on uh, his Hollywood connections and the friends he had made in Hollywood to show up at this grand opening to kind of bring it notoriety and kind of draw people in. Mm-hmm. But at the same fucking weekend, he opened it the day after Christmas. And on that day, it was a huge storm. So nobody could make it to the grand opening. But also, why the day after Christmas? I don't know. I I don't know. Well, he was Jewish. But still, doesn't he think that people might be still with, it's the day after fucking Christmas. There's still people doing shit. I feel like that's a bad day. I don't know. Vegas never sleeps. Like, why not New Year's Eve? <laughs> I don't know. It's I, that not even be, that far after. That would be a wonderful grand opening for an opulent <laughs> hotel in Vegas. I, I, I don't know. Who knows what he does, what he does. He's a fucking does. idiot. Yeah, he was dumbass. He was a dumbass. So... So not only, like you said, was it the day after Christmas, but there was a huge storm and half the celebrities that said they were going to come didn't make it because of the storm. So the ones that did make it walked into a lobby with construction plastic still hanging on some of the walls. Everything was unfinished. There was construction noise in the background. None of the rooms were finished to reserve for the... (laughs) day or weekend or whatever the only thing that was finished was the casino floor that's it oh my god um yeah it was a fucking disaster and within the first week of opening the flamingo was still three hundred thousand dollars in the red even with the functioning casino oh maybe that's three million um So he had to close the doors. He closed the doors again and he closed Mm -hmm. it down for two months. And for the next two months, he scrambled to finish the flamingo. Um, And this is a quote from the book Bugsy Siegel, The Life and Legacy of the Notorious Gangster Who Helped Develop Murder, Inc. and the Las Vegas Strip. Nice name. (laughs) Seriously. Uh, Quote, at last... On the 1st of March, 1947, the Flamingo reopened its doors as the Fabulous Flamingo, this time complete with the first ever air-conditioned hotel on the Strip and a freshly painted sign of a neon pink flamingo. The online Nevada Encyclopedia provides a descriptive passage about the new and approved establishment. The desert town had never seen such opulence before. The Flamingo featured a trap shooting range, a nine-hole golf course, tennis, squash, badminton, and handball courts, as well as extensive landscaping with imported or oriental date palm and Spanish cork trees. Members of Bugsy's staff wore tuxedos, preferred to attract wealthy clients who dressed with class in formal attire, attire while in his casino. The Flamingo's Casino was without a doubt its centerpiece, featuring walls of green marble, dangling V-shaped light troughs, and a mirrored wall by the slots that gave the illusion of a gaming area double the size. The absence of windows and clocks was intentional. That's how they get you. Yes. So by May, that was March 1947. By May 1947, the Flamingo was making $250,000 a month. But this was nowhere near the amount of money that he needed to repay all the loans that he had taken out to build this thing. And 
even though it did have air conditioning, it kept breaking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it like was a disaster. People began to notice he was becoming increasingly more paranoid, manic, and agitated. On June 20th, 1947, Bugsy Siegel headed to his Beverly Hills mansion, actually the mansion of his girlfriend, Virginia Hill, which is another character that I did not even mention, and she is fucking fascinating to me. Oh my God, I want to do an episode on her. Okay. Um, so he headed to his Beverly Hills mansion. After a nap and a late dinner with friends, he was sitting in the parlor just about to read the Los Angeles Times with a friend when after 11 p.m. shots rang out from outside the parlor window. A total of nine bullets made it through the window for hitting the target, Ben Bugsy Siegel. Two made their way through his torso, lodging in his lungs. One went through his right cheek and the final through the bridge of his nose, dislodging his left eyeball. There were lots of rumors and theories on who killed Bugsy Siegel or who ordered the hit. Some say it was a local Los Angeles drug lords that resented him for flooding the market with drugs from Mexico. Some say it had to do with the race wire operation he had going on. Some people believe that the syndicate elders grew tired of Bugsy's poor business decisions. And uh, there were also rumors swirling around that they believed he was skimming off the top of the loans and his casino. Um, I tend to believe the latter. I find it highly suspicious that 20 minutes after Bugsy Siegel was murdered, Mo Sedway, Gus Greenbaum, and Meyer Lansky walked into the Flamingo lobby and took it over. <laughs> okay. So part of me thinks... Um, it was the last of the theories. And also, um, Meyer Lansky talked about Bugsy Siegel later on in life. He really had a soft spot for him. He really cared for him. They were great friends. And he said if it was up to him, Bugsy would still be alive. And, um, in one of the articles I read, it was said that there was a meeting in Cuba while the Flamingo was being built for the elders of the syndicate met and said, you know, he's got to go. He's too much money. He's being um, irresponsible. He's not making, he's got to go. And Lansky said, give him one more chance. And then they gave him another chance and he fucked it up again. And they had another meeting and they're like, okay, (laughs) he's got to go. And Lansky was like, no, please don't go. But, or please don't take him out. But uh, despite, what Lansky thought or said, you know, Bugsy ended up getting murdered. So I think that, that the syndicate was just sick of his bullshit and he was kind of loose ends. He was kind of unraveling. He was an opium user for most of his life. So I think there was a lot of factors into that. And then after Bugsy was murdered and the syndicate, you know, set, sent Mo and Gus and, and Meyer Lansky to the Flamingo, they kind of piggybacked off of Bugsy's vision for Vegas. And by 1950, the strip was lined with over-the-top themed hotels, casinos, and resorts. The casinos had non-criminal affiliated frontmen. So they had like, you know, someone who wasn't in, in the mob kind of working there. But behind the scenes, the wise guys were running the show the whole time. And 
you know, Lansky was known as the mob's accountant, and he was in charge of collecting the skim and distributing it appropriately throughout the syndicate. And it is said that the time that Gus Greenbaum and Mo Sedway and Meyer Lansky took over the Flamingo is kind of when Vegas switched hands from the New York syndicate to Chicago outfit. Mm-hmm. So the Chicago syndicate kind of took over from where Bugsy left off. And mm-hmm. the mob thrived in Vegas from, you know, the early 40s, mid 40s, all the way through the 70s, even into the 80s, until a new syndicate rose to power in Sin City. And that was Wall Street, baby. <laughs> And capitalism, like you said, has had Vegas in a chokehold ever since. Just a transfer of power. Yep. No better. Just a transfer of power from one syndicate to another. Pretty much. And that is the story of the very first big fancy mob casino in Vegas and how it spiraled to what Vegas is today. Man. Yeah. Can you believe we did it? <laughs> the fucking hyper-condensed version of the mob in Vegas, baby. Yeah. And you know what? Unfortunately for the mob, what happens in Vegas doesn't always stay in Vegas. Mm-mm. It definitely comes out during happy hour like it did today. <laughs> Booyah. Gotcha. Gotcha good. <laughs> so thank you so much for listening. This was a super fun episode. For me, I'll speak for myself, I think Tiffany too, but I am fascinated by the mob and all the facets. Like there's so many facets of the mob and I just, I'm fascinated. I'm obsessed. I'm like on one of those like hyper-focused missions now. I need to consume everything mob. There's a reason why there's a million movies and books and shows. I'm watching (laughs) The Sopranos right now. I'm not unique. (laughs) Yeah. We're not the only ones, but, um, Even though we talked a lot about the mob specifically today, Uh the series is focused on Las Vegas as a whole. Yes. So you'll have to come back to see where we head next. Yes, we have a ton of fun Vegas content lined up. I am excited. I just went to Vegas. I actually love Vegas. Um, I think it's, it's such a cool place. There's so many different people. I love to people watch there. The food is great. The drinks are great. The entertainment is great. It is such a cool fucking unique gem. It is. It truly is. Desert Oasis. Yes, it is. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening and stay tuned for more Vegas episodes coming up until the end of the year. And uh, on that note, love yourself. Lock your doors. And light some sage. Cheers to that. Cheers to that. We did it. Ta-da!